Let's turn together, if you don't mind, to Psalm 131. Do you ever have those passages of Scripture that, at least for a season, become your favorite passages of Scripture? There are a few of you who have a passage that's like your life passage or your life verse. If you're a millennial, you probably have it tattooed somewhere on your body. If you're older than that, you probably have it written down in the flyleaf of your Bible because we're old and old-fashioned. Um, but some of us have passages of Scripture that, that change over time. And probably all of us have a psalm or two that are really precious to us. Uh, they're passages of Scripture that God used to bring us through trials, to lead us to understand Him better. Uh, psalms of deliverance where, where God worked in our lives and, and took care of us. Right now, Psalm 131 is, is my psalm. It's, it's my favorite psalm because I think in so many ways it sums up my life. It helps me understand me better. We've been saying throughout the summer as we've been going through the Psalms that they were given to us as a gift by God to help us understand how to be whole worshipers, the things that we do with our hands, but also the things inside of us, the things that, that do leak out, but the things that people don't often see, they're hard to measure, our affections, our, our desires, our fears, the things we think about the things that we love, the things that we hate. And being an image bearer in a fallen world, especially being a restored image bearer, is a confusing walk. Because we remember what it feels like to be governed by desires and, and have no governance by the Spirit. We remember that. But now we are learning. It's a progressive thing. It's it's. It's ongoing. We are learning to, to be governed by God's Spirit and to, to live under His sovereign care and to worship Him. But we live in tension. We live in tension between old memories of who we used to be and who we now are in Christ. We, we live in tension between compulsions still to find pleasure in other things and and yet being compelled by God's Spirit to find pleasure in Him. It, it's a confusing tension in which we live here in these bodies in this present world. And to compound all of this, we go through difficult experiences. And as prideful people who want to, to govern our own lives and to be in charge of our own lives especially when things happen to us that we don't like, it can be really, really confusing. Psalm 131 is given to us as a gift from our God to help us live in peace and walk by faith in a world filled with tension and even internal conflict. So I think this is a psalm for walking in humble faith. So let's read it together. It's short. And let me say to you as we get started today, I want to do things just a little bit differently today. I'm going to preach shorter today, I promise. And then I would love if God's Spirit prompts you, inspires you, 
where maybe one or two of you who has listened well and in whose heart God may be working to be willing to come up here and talk about how what you are learning from this psalm helps you interpret your own tension, your own conflict, your own experience. How it gives you a lens to understand what God is doing in your life, either in the recent past or from the much bigger point of view. So when I finish, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, maybe one or two of you, if any of you would like to do that. If nobody would like to do that because you're really eager to get to the business meeting, then we'll pray and we'll close. But if anybody would like to do that, uh, I would like to see if God's Spirit would work in your heart the way that He has worked in mine through this psalm. So this is a song of ascents of David. We have spent much time in the Psalms of Ascent here, this latter portion of the Psalter. We have spent much time in these songs of ascent, which by way of reminder were used by these pilgrim Israelites as they went up to Jerusalem three times a year for the high festivals. We spent time last week in Psalm 130, this psalm of repentance. We have gone through psalms of praise, psalms of expectation, as these pilgrims were going up to Jerusalem for these high festivals, different emotions, different thoughts would have been coursing through their minds. And it is no different for us as pilgrims of God, longing for the celestial city that will come down one day to this earth when all things are made new. But until then, we, we pilgrim along. And this is one that is given to us, a short one, but a, a really important one for our pilgrimage. So this is a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And may God bless to us the reading of his word. Sometimes, as you read the superscriptions above verse 1 of these psalms, which, as best we can tell, were originally inspired. In other words, the author actually wrote those things out. These aren't just editorial comments. David wanted this to to be a psalm for the people. It could have been after the psalms were collected that the editor added some thoughts, but But David wanted this psalm to be sung by his people because as the king, as the leader of his people, as a shepherd of his people, his own experience was their experience. And he wanted them to interpret their experience the way that he had learned to interpret it. We are not told when he wrote this or exactly why he wrote it. There are times in the superscriptions when we know why, the occasion for which the psalm was written. We don't know why this one was written. Could it have been when David was fleeing from Saul after he had been anointed, the chosen one of God to lead his people, and yet Saul, who he was content to serve, had turned on him and had become maniacal 
with bloodlust and wanted to kill David? Could it have been when David was hanging out in a cave, far from the palace, far from his calling, wondering what was going on? This God who had called him to the throne when he wasn't looking for it, and he was the furthest thing from it. Maybe that is when David wrote this. Maybe it was whenever he was with the pagans in Philistia, living among the heathens when he should have been residing over God's people, taking care of them. Could it have been when one of his sons sought to lead a coup against him? And though he had faithfully loved his children and shepherded his people, his own family turned their backs on him. Some of you have felt that. Could it have been after David took the census of Israel when God told him not to, indicating that David's heart was lifted up in pride over the kingdom over which he resided, and God punished him and the kingdom for it. Could it have been after David's child died, after his adultery with Bathsheba, and he learned to accept the bitter providence of God as a result of his sin? David's life was all full of different kinds of experiences, moments of of great elation where, where things were going well and moments of great sorrow where because of his sin or the sins of others, he was in the pit of misery. We do not know, but, but maybe that's good for us because the psalm speaks to our different experiences in so many ways. Just to get sort of personal, whenever I was 16 or 17 and my life began to really change. I don't know whether theologically to, to mark that or to credit that to new birth. That may have been the time of my new birth when the Spirit gave me new life and faith to believe and I trusted Jesus and was justified. I had made a profession of faith when I was seven, sitting around a campfire in Colorado. I understood the gospel when I was seven. I didn't really walk with Christ until I was 16 or so. I don't know how to exactly articulate all of that. Was I, was I wandering from God for those nine years, or, or did I actually finally trust Christ after those nine years? I, I'm not sure what to say. But I, I can say that at that point, my faith in Christ was real. And at that point, um, <clears throat> because I had watched Top Gun... Right, this was the movie of my childhood, 1986. Um, my, my, uh, my goal in life was to be a naval aviator. That, I mean, that was the coolest thing ever, right? Because you got cool sunglasses, a cool leather jacket, you got to ride a motorcycle, and you got to go like Mach 2, right? That was my goal in life. But, but it got a little more refined by the time I was 16 because I began walking with Christ, and I realized that I, I had wrong desires and, and all that stuff. And so then I thought, well, I still want to go into the Navy, but I want to be an attorney. And so I thought that that would, would match my gifts um, and, and would give me an opportunity to, to do the thing that I, that I like to do. I, I like literature and I, li- I like history and law and those things were, were interesting to me. Um, but I also, want, I also wanted to be significant. I, I wanted to be successful. And there's nothing wrong with that, I think, at, at its baseline. But around that time, I began... Uh, becoming very active in my youth group, uh, I had opportunities to teach a little bit, which was a mess back then, and it was barely orthodox. Uh, but I loved it. 
And I had people around me who loved me, who were, who were watching over me, who were helping me refine some of those gifts. One of the things I loved the most during that time is I began to, to help other kids in some very early discipleship ways. And, and that gave me tons of joy. And so around that time, I felt very compelled that, that I should go into vocational ministry. And people around me, uh, mentors in my life, felt the same. So there was confirmation of that. And thus began a, a journey for me which I believe God chose for me. The occupation which God chooses for us is often not easy, right? And, and that's been the case for me. There are moments where I, I love what I do. There are moments where I don't like what I do, to be really honest with you. There are moments when, when, when you're telling people what is true and they just won't grasp it. There, there are moments where you're telling people what they need to do and it's, it's clear as day from the Scriptures, but their hearts are far away and they won't believe it. There are times whenever you, you walk with people through, through difficult circumstances and, and yet they turn away. Um, my occupation is a deeply personal one. People that I, I love dearly there are some of them today who, who live still in Central Ohio who hate me because we wouldn't let them have their way in certain ways or, or whatever. And I'm being super vague and I'm not even thinking about necessarily anybody in particular, just generally. About four years into our church plant, our home church, our funding church, which was, had promised to do about another year of funding of this church, went through a massive split Oh, and, and we were cut off on our funding. I, I remember the, the fear of that and how we were going to take care of our family. There, there's been other moments like that. And I feel like what God has done often in this occupation which He's chosen for me, which is very much a calling for me, is He has taught me that, that I probably will never have total equilibrium. That, that He's given me a little bit of... of, of of just feeling a little off sometimes, of feeling like I don't really have control of everything. It's, it's a little bit like just being off balance a lot of the time. And for the longest time, I really despised that. I didn't like that because I'm a control guy. Going back to my, my childhood, I've always been a control guy. I've been a fearful person and, and the way that I have asserted power over my fears is by taking control. And though he has placed me in a position of authority, I really feel like most of the time I don't have a lot of control. And though that's been painful and difficult, it has been the best thing for me. Because slowly, over time, progressively, step by step, my good Father and my wise and powerful God is giving me what's best for me. And so Psalm 131 in some ways help me, helps me interpret the, the walk that I'm on, this pilgrimage of mine. And I suspect that if, if you had time to reflect upon your own pilgrimage, your own story, the calling God has placed upon your life, the guardrails He's put around you and, and the path upon which He's put you, that you could say something similar. So Psalm 131, first of all, is a psalm for the proud. For those who struggle 
to not be God. I'm not really going to outline this psalm. It's super short. But I just want to take the main message of it and talk about how it might apply to our lives today. And remember, I want you to be interpreting this for your own story or through the lens of your own story. Or maybe more accurately, I want you to use this psalm to help you interpret your story. And again, if a couple of you might be willing to share briefly about how this speaks to your story, I would invite you to do that at the end of our time today. This is a psalm for the proud, for those who struggle to not be God. David, who had a lot of power and a lot of authority, a lot of acclaim, I mean, if the stories weren't true, you would say that a mythology of, of Davidic stories had grown up. This boy who killed a lion and a bear, and he didn't have a 30 6 like he did it with rudimentary weapons. A guy who killed the fiercest warrior of his day with a leather strap and a rock. This one who put down kingdoms and, and drew mighty men to surround him. This man had reason to be proud. He was king after all. But notice what he says. The king. O oh Lord, the covenant Lord, Yahweh, my covenant God, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Despite every human reason to be proud of who he was and what he had done and what he had, David refused to lead a life of pride. Or maybe better said, David was careful to keep a constant check on himself. For do we ever fully arrive at humility? Is it, is it a destination at which we arrive before death? I think those of you who are a little bit older, where the balance of, of like auburn hair is turning more gray, that you would say, I have not arrived at that point yet. The path to humility is, is just that. It's, it's a lifelong path. It's part of the pilgrimage. And I think David, at intervals, would write psalms like this to remind himself of the process. So I say to those of you who are still struggling with pride, who want to be in control, who want to be God, don't be surprised and don't lose heart because it's going to be that way until you draw your final breath. Now, you should be making progress, which is one of the great reasons for discipleship. If you do not feel like you are making progress in your battle against pride, draw someone else into that pilgrimage alongside you and we'll help you with that, these other prideful pilgrims. David's son would compile some of the Proverbs, and in Proverbs 18, 12, Solomon says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. From an honorable point of view, Solomon got that right at the beginning of his story. 
God gave him access to all good things, and Solomon asked for wisdom, and then God gave him everything else. He began well. Solomon's is a cautionary tale, however, because he did not end well, as best we can tell, for he lived with great pride and stopped following after God. Do we want to be honored? I think it's, it's natural for that. It's that, that desire is a natural one. But, but it's up to God if we will be honored, right? In Psalm 18, the psalmist says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. You notice that David says in Psalm 131, 1, My eyes are not raised too high. Gazing after things, wanting things. It's an interesting tale that Jesus tells in Luke 14. Now, he told a parable Jesus did to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, instead, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Ever since our first parents, we have dealt with the fruit of our sinfulness, and one of the fruits of our sinfulness is that we want to be significant. We lose sight of the fact that we are chosen, reconciled sons and daughters of God, which is the most significant label we can ever wear. The most important declaration that can ever be made is not that we are in charge of an organization or famous or talented or wealthy or well thought of or influential. As intoxicating as those labels may be to us, the most precious and important declaration that can ever be made of us is that we are redeemed children of God. And yet still, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and are hoping in Him still struggle with wanting to be significant. This has always been true of humanity. It's easy to pick on our generation or our culture as as maybe the most prideful, full of of avarice, hedonistic. It's it's easy to pick on our culture as the worst ever. But but there are things in our culture that that make this harder, right? For our our young people, this is hard for you. Social media makes makes it more difficult. School makes it hard. It's hard to not want to be on top, to not be well-liked, to not be in the in-crowd, to not be liked, to not make it look like you you have life altogether. And unless we just say that to our young people, it's true for all of us as well, right? It's easy to 
look on Facebook and see people with perfect lives, or, or seemingly so, who have it all together, their kids and their, their jobs and their possessions. And the truth of the matter is, humanity has always struggled with wanting to be significant, to wanting to be the best, to be on top. Or maybe it manifests itself in a bit of a different way, to feel like a failure when you're not. To feel that, that governing and superintending, stewarding your little slice of this earth huge though it may seem, is insignificant and meaningless. So what if you are a wife and a mother who has a degree, but you no longer work vocationally and are gainfully employed, but you are spending years watching over kids, changing diapers, nursing, Washing the same outfit five times in the same week. Cooking and cleaning the same dishes over and over. The mundane. Or what if you are an employee sitting in an office or a cubicle doing the same rote tasks week after week, year after year? What if you are a dad taking your Kids to sporting events again and again and again, thinking sometimes, this is all I do. You see, mowing grass, cooking spaghetti, cleaning up puke, piling the kids into the minivan and getting them to church basically on time, checking homework, signing medical release forms, Being a good employee, being a faithful friend, all these things may seem meaningless. You may feel like nobody sees it and you're not making an impact. But everything you do is a holy act of worship if it's done to the Lord. Even cooking spaghetti and cleaning up puke. If Jesus wants some of the laborers in his field to be more significant and more noticed, that's up to him. And if he chooses to do that, you're no better or worse than your neighbor, your brother or sister who is less significant. In a day and age, and more accurately, being part of this human race that that craves significance, David, who actually had it, knew it could actually derail him. Because you see, how often is it that we find people who get to those places of significance and power, who squander it and ruin their lives? Sometimes being in the limelight, sometimes being perceived as significant is actually more dangerous to your soul than being obscure. The truth of the matter is, most of our great-grandchildren will not know our names. And that is okay. God has called us to the task of worshiping Him and laboring for Him while we wait for redemption. 
If He chooses to make us significant, that's up to Him. I don't think that ambition is necessarily bad. It's okay to be ambitious. But we do have to be careful with with our ambition, don't we? We would say that ambition to be rich is evil, but ambition to be be kind, to, to be generous, that's not evil. It would be ambitious to to be powerful and probably evil to be ambitious to be powerful. But if you are a gifted person who leads people well, loving to lead them to know God and to treasure Him, that would not be evil. So, So we have to be careful. Ambition in and of itself is not an evil thing, but but ambition to make much of oneself and not much of Christ is evil. And much of our lives is, is a testing of, of the actual inside part of us, the, the ambition test. What is the ambition and, and what's it directed toward? We won't take time to turn here, but this is be a, a good cross-reference for you if you'd like to do some more thinking and praying this week. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. This is the parable of the talents. The master gave to his servants different talents, different amounts of money, and called them to invest it. The first guy took his talents and invested much and gained much in reward. The second was given less but invested it and was praised by his master. The third was given the least but squandered it and made excuses and was punished for it. In a congregation like this, there are people with different talents, different, different degrees of, of talent, different giftings. God has given these to us as He sees fit. It is His calling upon us to do well with what He has given us. And if He chooses to promote us and make us significant, that is That is up to Him. So this is a psalm for the proud, for those who struggle to not be God. This is also a psalm for the anxious, for those who struggle to trust God. So maybe you see yourself with this first purpose of the psalm. You want to be significant. You crave significance. You're irritated that people don't value you for who you are, that your gifts are not more on display. And, and, and if you think that, that you're the only one, me too, okay, me too. But maybe you find yourself through the second lens. This is a psalm for the anxious, for those who struggle to trust God. Notice what he says at the end of, of verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. There are things that David just couldn't understand, Why why did God do things the way He did them? Why did God allow things the way that He allowed them? Why would Absalom turn away from David who had blessed him and seek to lead a coup against him? Why would God allow that? We've all felt this at times. Maybe you're in a season right now where you feel this. And with some of the stories that are going on right now in this church, I I know there, there have to be some of you that feel this. God, why, if you love me, why would you allow this? 
I've had seasons of life, several seasons of life, where I felt like, God, I'm, I'm doing the things you want me to do. I'm obeying you. I, I'm not pursuing sinful things, for the most part. But yet, you're allowing these trials into my life, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't square with my reason. Why would you do this? Why would you allow me to struggle like this? Why would you afflict me like this? Why would you afflict people that I love like this? Why would you allow my name to be drugged through the mud when I've sought to just honor you and love people? But David, who himself struggled, despite all the privileges he had, could confess, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous. In other words, you see things I don't see. You know what's best for me. And I could never have your wisdom. I'll never have a heart of love like yours. I'll never possess the reserves of power that you do. And so I bow to you as my creator and my redeemer. What was David's posture? Notice verse 2. I have calmed and quieted my soul... Well, that's really hard to do, right? Even when we seem quiet on the outside, like right now, all of you are mostly quiet on the outside. I suspect that quite a number of you are very noisy on the inside. I suspect David wrote this because he wanted to be calm and quiet on the inside. It was, it was an act of faith for him to write this to help him get there. And then he uses a metaphor, the metaphor of a weaned child He could have talked about a baby at its mother's breast, which is a trusting child, right? Receiving nourishment. Why a weaned child? And why did he repeat it? Well, a weaned child has has learned to trust that mother even when something is taken away from him. So let's appeal to Spurgeon to help us understand this. It's always a good idea. To the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. In other words, she's not nursing him anymore. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forgo the joys which once appeared to be essential, the milk, and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Then we behave manfully, maturely, and every childish complaint is hushed. If the Lord removes our dearest delight, we bow to His will without a murmuring thought. In fact, we find a delight in giving up our delight. This is no spontaneous fruit of nature, but a well-tended product of divine grace. It grows out of humility and lowliness, and it is the stem upon which peace blossoms or blooms as a fair flower. Well, that's really well said. Sometimes God takes away the things that we think we need the most to lead us to something far better. And David here exhibits the confidence and humility of a child who does not have control of his own life, but is growing up. Spurgeon's point is, these lessons are hard-earned. It takes a lifetime to learn these lessons. When I hear people say that they wish they could go back to their 20s, I don't want to go back to when I was 20. I've had 21, almost 22 years since then, 
And the lessons have been hard-earned. I don't want to go through them again. I kind of like being nearly 42. I'm not who I want to be yet, to be sure, to be clear. But I'm thankful for the way confidence is growing. Spurgeon goes on to say, Blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections. Let me me read that again. Blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections, which wean us from self-sufficiency, which educate us into Christian manliness, which teach us to love God not merely when He comforts us, but even when He tries us. That's real maturity, my brothers and sisters. Again, we will not take time to turn here, but Josh read these verses for us earlier. All of Hebrews 11, in particular verses 1 through 16, teach us the value of walking by faith, of living a life moving toward a city that we cannot yet see, of trusting God even when He does things that we wouldn't like. So a good corollary study to follow up on our time for today. This is a psalm for the proud, for those who struggle to not be God, and this is a psalm for the anxious, for those who struggle to trust God. One last quote from Spurgeon. No doubt, hundreds have sung this psalm long before they have understood it. So if you feel like you're on this journey of faith, join the club. But we, we work at this so that we can learn to be mature and trusting children of God who allow Him, which sounds funny, right? Who allow Him to just be God and trust Him when He actually acts like God. So we have a few minutes here, and I'm going to allow a couple of you, if you would like, to use the lens of this passage to talk about something present or something maybe more long-term. If you'd like to do that, I would invite you to come up here and do that. We, we never do this, but I feel like it would be a good way for us to respond in the moment to what God's Spirit is teaching us. Would anybody like to do that? If you don't, then we'll finish our service. But would anybody like to do that? And I'm okay to stare at you for a minute or so. To use this psalm, what God is teaching you currently or over the course of your life, to talk about His goodness and to bless us. Laura, saw your hand. Anybody else? Anybody want to be brave? All right, Laura, why don't you come up, take a couple minutes, then I'll pray and we'll close, okay? I'm pretty new to the Christianity arena anyway, so I definitely was struggling with the um, trusting in God. But um, I have literally gone three months without being able to drive. And if you would have told me that that would have been possible when I first started the journey on May 11th when I had my episodes and lost consciousness and my driving was taken away, I would have never thought it possible. But here I am. I've had so many people willing to drive me. People that didn't even know me before in my neighborhood are willing to drive me. People here in the church, my family, my friends. And I mean, I thought as soon as, you know, my health went bad and I couldn't drive, I would have lost everything, my job, everything. And it, it's been a while, obviously, and I'm still struggling. I'm still not completely healthy, but 
haven't had an episode in over a month. I'm hopefully going to be able to drive in a couple months. And it's really taught me to kind of sit back and take, take another look at what's going on and what's more important and how I can kind of get through things. And it's been very, very helpful. But it's definitely not something I would have wished on myself. And it's definitely not something I'd wish on anybody else. But it, I think it's really helped me in my growth. So that's it. Anybody else get inspired real quick? Lisa? It's my last call. Anybody else want to share something real quick? Could be one of our grown-ups or one of our young people. Anybody else? All right, I promise I won't ask again. Lisa? I thought I was going to be a real humble, nice person by the time I had gray hair. <laughs> it's not working out. Um, but I did find, and I do find, that the battle between humility and pride is a violent and bloody one. And you can't sneakily get hum hum humility. You can't. He's not going to give it to you under the table. Um, it's a fight. And it's still a fight. And I'm sure that when I'm 80, I'll still be fighting this, <laughs> the same fight. So fight together. <laughs> We're all doing it. And so David says to his people in verse 3, and I say to us together as his covenant people today, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you have given us these words, and certainly hundreds, thousands, millions have sung this song, have studied it, have felt it, but haven't quite understood it. And we know that the rest of this life that you allow, under your guidance, Lord Jesus, will be a process of learning this, that, that you alone are God and that we're not, that we are not to crave significance, but instead to, to desire you, to make much of you. And, and if you do things with us which seem insignificant, that's up to you. If you do things with us which in the eyes of the world might seem remarkable, that's also up to you. Our Father, you put us through afflictions that we would not choose. You give us cancer, or at least allow it, even knowing how to articulate that can be difficult sometimes. You allow tragedy to come into our lives that, that we would not have chosen, stories of our childhood which still affect us to this day, difficult marriages, struggles with our children, layoffs, poverty. And yet you are teaching us, Father, like weaned children who have had things taken away from us, the things which sustained us and seemed precious to us, we are learning to trust you even still, that even whenever those precious things are taken away, the things that we thought we needed the most, you are still sustaining us and taking care of us and giving us a deeper confidence in you. We're thankful, though the, the battle wounds are there and though the scar tissue remains, we're thankful that you have done that and you are doing that. 
So please be gentle while you do it. Please be faithful to us as you've always been with your covenant people. And because David appealed to you as his covenant God, we appeal to you as our covenant God to keep all of your promises to us, even through the affliction and through the difficult lessons. So help us as your covenant people to to learn to live in humility beneath you, to learn to live in trust beneath you. May you get glory from us and may we find our deepest joy and rest in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.